Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Jim, things are kind of crazy right now. And one part of this craziness is an obsession with identity, judging people because of their race or their views on gender or sexuality. It's time to push back. And we'll hear in this episode that the great pushback may have begun during the last few weeks. In the last episode of How Do We Fix It, we dealt with the root causes of woke or identity politics. And in this episode, a constructive, enlightened, even at times good-humored response. Part two of The Identity Trap with Yasha Monk. I don't think we're setting up the political precondition for a politics of solidarity, for politics of empathy, for politics of social justice. Yes, of course, categories like race and gender and sexual orientation help to explain uh, what's going on in the world. But they're not the only categories that help to explain what's going on in the world. There's also social class, there's religion and patriotism, there's individual actions and attributes and aspirations. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? Once upon a time, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, defended the right of neo-Nazis to protest in Skokie, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. That was back in the late 1970s. The ACLU persuaded a federal court to strike down local laws that place significant restrictions on the neo-Nazis' First Amendment right to march and express their views. Yeah, and for much of my life, that's been the archetypal example that people bring up to talk about what a rigorous commitment to free speech really looks like. And it's a sign of how much things have changed that very few people are really championing that today. And and in fact, the ACLU, more often than not, takes stances against free speech and in favor of various progressive worldviews that want to deny certain kinds of speech that certain groups might find difficult or offensive. This is an example of what Yasha Monk calls the identity synthesis, a way of viewing the world through race, gender, and sexual identity. 
In our last episode, we heard from Yasha about the intellectual roots of the identity synthesis. Richard, we got a lot of French philosophy, which, <laughs> which I liked. And we talked about the need to uphold those liberal values that were developed in the Enlightenment, enshrined in the American Constitution, and part of what our former guest Jonathan Rausch calls the constitution of knowledge. And it seems that this new worldview has thrown all that out the window. Yasha gave us an example of how the gay rights movement, and for that matter, the civil rights leaders of the 1960s, appealed to universal values in their successful campaigns to change laws. They gave stress to human rights rather than personal victimhood. And Jim, you took that up with Yasha. Part two of our interview begins. You know, that story of how the case was made for, for gay marriage by referring to those underlying um, traditional founding values uh, of the country, I, I think is a great example of how political ideologies and movements really can have effects in the real world, but they're not always good effects. And you're very concerned about the impact of the identity synthesis on our society. And you predict that in the long run, it will have the effect of creating a society of warring tribes rather than cooperating compatriots. Do you see that starting to happen? I see it happening in electoral politics, in a sense. So we talked about the way in which the election of Donald Trump helped consolidate those ideas within many mainstream institutions. But conversely, the hold of those ideas over many of our institutions is a little bit of a reason why Trump was able to do well in 2016, but much more strongly a reason why he is now running head-to-head or, frankly, leading Joe Biden in many polls for 2024. So according to one analysis by the New York Times, for example, about 10% of Republican voters, a crucial new voting bloc within the party, is predominantly young, predominantly non-white, predominantly progressive on many social issues, but really concerned about what they call the whole of wokeness on our institutions. And so in my mind, there's no choice between, you know, should we deal with a more important threat of Donald Trump or should we deal with these ideas? No, to deal with Trump, the best route is actually to be honest about where some of these ideas go wrong. So I think you can see it in those concrete and immediate ways, but you also see it more broadly in some of the institutions that this ideology inspires. You know, in many Elite schools in this country, you now have teachers coming to classrooms when kids are eight or seven or six years old and split them out into different racial groups, have the African-American kids go into one classroom and the Asian-American kids into a second classroom, the Latino kids into a third classroom and the white kids into a fourth classroom. And the purpose of this is to act in keeping with that form of strategic essentialism that Spivak described for the non-white kids, to encourage them to think of themselves as racial beings so that they can stand up against injustice, um, and to have the white kids own the whiteness, think of themselves as white in order to disown the white privilege. But everything that I think we know about history and social science suggests that that's not how these things play out, that the white kids in particular, once they think of whites as their in-group, are going to fight, like every in-group, for the interests of the in-group over that of the out-group. Some of those kids may end up being good good, uh, principled anti-racists. Many of them, I think, are going to turn into racists. So I do think that those kind of pedagogical practices we're taking on 
are much more likely to inspire zero-sum competition than cooperation and political solidarity. So this will lead to a rise of, of more racism. People who emphasize uh, gender and racial identity above everything else could be shooting themselves in the foot, leading to more support for the right than the left. Yes, but, but that is my fear. It depends on what kind of form of identity politics you're talking about. If you're talking about people saying, hey, members of this group in our society face these injustices, um, and that's unfair. We want to be treated the same as everybody else. That, I think, is the line of argument made by the mainstream tradition of black political thought historically in this country, and it's the line of argument made by gay rights activists. And despite the, the, the significant flaws from which our country still suffers, I think it is one that has allowed us to make significant progress. And by the way, if I stand at a different intersection of identities than you, then we're not really going to be able to understand each other. The only form of political solidarity we can have is to defer to the judgments of the spokespeople of that other group. I don't think we're setting up the political precondition for a politics of solidarity, for politics of empathy, for politics of social justice. Right now, we have a test case going on that shows that these ideas don't only influence our domestic realm, but they shape how we look at the world, how we look at, at uh, global politics, especially the anti-colonialist narrative. The reaction to Hamas's October 7 attack in Israel really seems like a, for many people, including me, a, a shocking uh, revelation of how deeply some of these ideas have penetrated on college campuses and cities around the world. We saw protesters pouring out to not to condemn the attacks, but to condemn Israel. I mean, even a day or two after the attacks before Israel had <laughs> done anything. And some of the same people weren't just worried about the civilians, but they were celebrating Hamas. Can you talk a little bit about how the identity synthesis plays a role in this political alignment. Yeah, and look, I, I, I completely understand that uh, this is a very complicated conflict and I have no particular bone to pick with people whose sympathies may be more on the Palestinian side than the Israeli side. But when you see a significant section of the global left, including activist organizations, but also many writers, musicians, intellectuals, professors, seemingly celebrate Hamas. That is in need of an explanation. You know, why is it that some college professors in the United States are very exhilarated by Hamas's attack? Why is it that very senior professors at Columbia University signed a letter that uh, talks about Hamas's killing of 1,200 civilians as a military action. And I do think that there are resources within the identity synthesis that have sanctified that conclusion and perhaps pushed people in the direction of that conclusion. The first is the simplistic way of splitting the world up into a category of white people on the one side and people of color on the other. The second is the idea that you can understand the world of colonizers and colonized. 
that, that everybody has to count into one of those two groups, and that can make sense of the situation. And then you say a third conclusion among supporters of the identity synthesis is about structural racism, which may well exist even when people involved in its impacts are not racist themselves. It's a striking distinction. There are certain forms of structural disadvantage that may persist even when nobody first personally holds those kind of views. Um, so one famous example is that if there is uh, uh, an African-American man in the streets of New York, let's say before the rise of Uber and Lyft in 2000, trying to pick up a cab, um, he may have difficulty getting a cab because cab drivers fear that he's going to take them to a neighborhood where they're less likely to get the next fare. That may be true if all the cab drivers are black or if all the cab drivers are not racist in any kind of way. That's a structural form of racism. I think it's a helpful concept. But once you say all racism is structural, as many activists and scholars now claim, that it's literally impossible to be racist towards a white person, then you seemingly justify any form of behavior towards members of dominant groups. So now you take those three ideas together. Well, you look at Israel and you say, well, this is, Israelis are whites and Palestinians are people of color. Israelis are colonizers and Palestinians are colonized, and therefore any form of resistance will be justified. This is how you get to a celebration of Hamas. And of course, it does complete violence to the much more complicated nature of a situation on the ground. One of many uh, possible ways to complicate this narrative, um, a plurality of uh, Israelis now is Mizrahi. They have origins uh, in the Middle East, were expelled from those countries since 1945, uh, since 1948. They are people who had uh, for centuries lived in places like Iraq and Iran and uh, Morocco and Algeria and so on. They are not... To put it very bluntly, they are people of color. Yes, visually, they are not obviously any more or less dark than the average Palestinian. They're not colonizers. They're thrown out of their ancestral lands and had nowhere else to go in many cases other than Israel. And so to say that a two-year-old or an 80-year-old from that group somehow can legitimately be subject to, quote-unquote, a military action as a colonizer, that is just a, a, a deeply inhumane view that is having sanctified by the way in which a popularized version of the identity synthesis has become so influential in many influential circles in our society, especially in the intellectual world and the art world and universities and so on. Yasha, I know that just before we turned on the recording, you said you had to take your students out for lunch, which is a very noble <laughs> gesture. And, and our show is called How Do We Fix It? So can we just talk for a little bit about potential solutions? Uh, you suggest that the identity pendulum uh, may have reached its extreme and, and, and is starting to swing back. Are there any examples yeah, so first of all, I think we need an intellectual response. Um, part of the nature of this particular problem is an ideology that doesn't lead us too far in the right direction, leads us in the wrong direction. And so part of the solution will have to be a set of ideas that can make sense of the world in a better way uh, and therefore, I think, guide our action in a better way. It is to say that, yes, of course, categories like race and gender and sexual orientation help to explain uh, what's going on in the world. But they're not the only 
categories that help to explain what's going on in the world. There's also social class, there's religion and patriotism, there's individual actions and attributes and aspirations, rather than coming to each situation with this uh, preformed set of goggles on our head, we need to let the situation teach us how best to read and to understand it. Robin DiAngelo, a best-selling author in 2020, a much-in-demand uh, diversity consultant, claims that every time a white person interrupts a black person, they're bringing the entire apparatus of white supremacy to bear on them. That makes me think that Robin DiAngelo does not have any black friends. Because part of friendship and part of a podcast is that you sometimes interrupt each other. The second claim is that the universal values and neutral rules that are our political inheritance are a lot of how we've made progress historically. Um, yes, we've never fully lived up to them. But that is not because of those principles. It is despite those principles. And they have been the best guide towards how to fight for progress. What we want to create is a society in which we come close to living up to these principles, not a society in which we reject them. We should have a much more ambitious vision of the future society we want to live in, ones in which we say, yes, we are able to understand our fellow citizens. It'll take work. We have to enter into conversation with each other, but we are able to have empathy for each other. We are able to have genuine political solidarity with each other on the basis of a shared understanding of the injustices in this society. And by the way, if we inspire each other, if we influence each other, if our cultures end up being all kinds of complicated fusions in a deeply diverse society like the United States, that's one of the beauties of these societies, not something that we should be worried about. Yasha says it can be personally risky for us to challenge the identity dogma, especially if it could put our job at risk. Here are a few of his solutions. I think that there are ways uh, to push back against these ideas in an effective uh, way that does not put you uh, overly at risk. Um, and the first of those is to claim the moral high ground, to recognize that we have genuine disagreements, uh, that there's reasonable people on the other side of this debate, but that you're neither apologetic for these ideas, you neither are... Uh, somehow arguing against what is good and holy in the world and therefore should be overly nervous and say, oh, of course, I mean, I'm so sorry to, you know, and nor should you be a jerk, nor should you say, nobody's going to agree with me anyway, so screw you, I'm going to throw out barbs and, you know, argue for these ideas with the conviction that you're arguing for what you believe to be a better world. Remember that people are open to persuasion. Um, persuasion doesn't work the way people sometimes imagine it. It's not like in the middle of a conversation, I give you the knockdown argument and you say, oh, regretfully, I must admit that my entire worldview is wrong. That's not how persuasion works. But many of the people who are the most effective critics of this ideology were once very drawn to it. Um, people like Mo Mitchell, the head of a Working Families Party, who wrote a very persuasive essay uh, writing about some of the pitfalls of this ideology. People like Ibu Patel, a great interfaith organizer out of Chicago who used to be very attracted to these ideas in college. People change their mind over time. And then finally, try to argue with the members of what I'm calling the reasonable majority rather than the extremes. I think it can become tempting to think that most uh, people, most Americans, aren't reasonable, that they hold extreme beliefs. Um, when you lo look at opinion polls or when you go to focus groups, that actually 
is not the case. People don't always think about politics terribly much. There are some important disagreements with what I believe about the world. I'm not going to believe anything just because the majority of Americans believe it. That would be a very weird way to go about the world. But they are, by and large, reasonable people who want the country and the world to be a better place. And uh, you can actually appeal to their values in, in meaningful ways. And so let's have it out. Let's, let's, let's actually go and fight for the liberal values that I think are going to create a better society. Yasha, you're really singing from our hymnal here at How Do We Fix It? Because this has been the motivating idea of our podcast from the start is is coming at ideas from different perspectives and, and trying to, to have conversations that don't always have to end in agreement. One challenge to this is when people invoke some of these identity ideas, it gives them a lot of power in a lot of conversations. I mean, if somebody is to tell me, well, you, you can't possibly know what you're talking about because you're an old white guy in the moment, it's kind of hard to answer that. I mean, how, how do you think people can handle these kinds of interactions just on a personal level? Look, I mean, sometimes it's important to know uh, when not to be drawn and who not to have a conversation with. I mean, if somebody is really saying, you don't get to have a legitimate point of view on this, I think it's fair to say, look, why are you talking to me? I mean, we're two humans. We're trying to figure this out. We're both sincere people. If you don't think I'm going to have anything valuable to say, go talk to somebody who you think will. There's obviously a fear I had talking about this subject. People will say, well, who are you to talk about it? I haven't gotten that nearly as much as I anticipated. And I think it's because people are getting a little bit tired of that tactic. They realize that we're all citizens of the same country. Every single person should have the same standing in that conversation. We should not stand for it if people are... Uh, devalued because they come from a historically marginalized group. Uh, but nor should we say, if you happen to be white or you happen to be this or that, uh, you're somehow excluded from this conversation. And I do find, at least on social media, that there's been a strange shift in our norms about this. Even a few years ago, um, you could get a lot of likes by saying, how dare you have an opinion about this You know, based on somebody's identity? And that led to a lot of, I think, quite bad behavior. Nowadays, when people try to do that on social media, they are very often ratioed and people are saying, hang on a second, who are you to make this kind of judgment? I think this goes back to claiming the moral high ground because I think you, you allow for a lot less room for attack when you say, hey, I thought about these ideas long and hard. I think I'm arguing for a better world. I might be wrong. We all might be wrong about everything. But that is the spirit with which I'm coming to this debate. And I'm confident that I think I'm standing in the tradition of the people who've helped us make enormous progress in this country. And so I'm going to act with grace and without, you know, being overly self-confident, but also with the knowledge that I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, that I'm standing on, on, on you know, advocating for political tradition but I, to the best of my abilities, believe to be right. Um, so disagree with me if you want. But, but, but that's, I think, a little bit hard to disqualify in that kind of way. And then when people do, you know what? I think part of our civic obligation 
is to live with discomfort sometimes. And if somebody really wants to tell you a terrible person because they disagree with you, it's their prerogative to do that. But I don't think that you have to shrink into yourself just because they do. And most likely, if you've not been a jerk and you've um, you know behaved in a sincere way, everybody else in that interaction, that institution, is going to recognize that you haven't done anything wrong. That's Yasha Monk, the author of the book, The Identity Trap. Coming next, a recommendation. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Okay, Richard, you are on the hook this week for a recommendation. What have you got for us? Mine is a short book that came out a few years ago called The Speech by Gary Young, who writes for The Guardian and for The Nation. It's the story behind Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech in 1963, why it was so powerful and such a defining moment in America's civil rights movement that ultimately led to positive changes in American society. The book is a gripping account, a good read, and underlines just how different that movement was from today's identity dogma. There was a great emphasis placed on human rights and empathy. There was also a direct appeal not just to black Americans, but to the whole country. The speech by Gary Young. Yeah, I can't wait to read that. I'm fascinated in that era. And I love, as as Yasha was explaining, how the key to the success of that movement was not asking for something on behalf of having been oppressed, although certainly black people were profoundly oppressed through much of American history, but asking America to live up to the values that were enshrined in the Constitution, to take them seriously. And it's remarkable how powerful that was and could still be if people would stay true to those values. This is the last episode of How Do We Fix It from 2023. Next, our conversation about the interview we had with Yasha Monk and a bit more besides. I think the rise of identity politics is part of something that's wrong with America and how the nation's way of thinking about itself is much more pessimistic today and perhaps even more damaged than it was in the recent past. In the last half of the 20th century, for example, this country was widely seen in many parts of the world as a beacon of freedom. And we were hopeful as a people, despite all of our flaws 
and injustices. Today, many are fearful, they're angry, they're rigidly divided into warring tribes. Our partisan polarization is paralyzing American foreign policy, such as our ability to defend Ukraine from Russia and Israel from Hamas and Hezbollah and Iran. And at home, we live in a time of rising anxiety among the young with growing rates of depression and mental illness. Technology has made it easy for people to express their opinions even when they have nothing new or even thoughtful to say. In addition, drug abuse deaths are very high. They've been rising in recent years. And the increase in identity politics, I think, is part of a sense of despair. In a lot of this has seemed to kind of come to a head just in the last few weeks. You know, uh, we saw this stunning spectacle of these uh, Ivy League college presidents coming before Congress and seeming to equivocate on the question of of whether calling for genocide is something that that should be uh, condemned on their their college campuses. There's been a lot of fallout from that, and I think it's helped expose for a lot of people who weren't really aware of it how deep this identity worldview goes and how it can be used by some, in this case on, on the far left, to to really deny the humanity of other people and and to uh, and to take positions which are you know really quite scary and dangerous. And I, I do think it's really high time to recognize how pervasive this movement is. Richard, you know, you and I have had many debates over the years about, you know, my concerns about this movement and your sense that, well, people are in college, they grow up. When I was in college, everybody was a Marxist. But it's different now, and it's spread into our institutions, uh, and, and, it, and we can see it has these pernicious effects. But it's not just on the left. Even on the right They've soaked up some of these ideas. They might have come from French philosophers who, you know, MAGA people have never heard of. But they've absorbed some of these ideas, too, that that the world's kind of a zero-sum game. And either you have power or you don't. You're either oppressing somebody or you're being oppressed. And, and in some ways, victimhood is power. You know, being resentful is a, an empowering way to look at the world. And, and, and I think that's part of what's driving some of these these partisan divides, the idea that if 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 you get something, it must be because you're taking it away from me, and and that my group, I need to empower my group to get back at your group. It's a terrible way to to look at the world. If we look around the world at the countries where this kind of thinking has has come to the fore, it's a very frightening example from history. But Jim, I'd like to think that any mass movement that's based on fear and resentment rather than hope and bringing people together, is ultimately doomed to fail. That's an optimistic take. I, I, I hope it's true that this kind of thinking could, could burn out on its own. But in the past, sometimes these movements have proved to be extremely durable and powerful uh, in terms of, uh, of, you know, as political movements. But some good news is that in a way, the mask is off a little bit. I think a lot of people have been horrified to see the scenes of people not just arguing for the cause of the Palestinian people, which is totally legitimate, but really celebrating the most horrible violence uh, and 
bloodthirstiness and and seeing that in a political framework well that's just what decolonization looks like what what a terrible way to to, to look at the world and i think yasha has some really great ideas about how to counter it and and one thing that he said that i really liked is is to claim the moral high ground you know a lot of us have been so apologetic about about arguing against these worldviews if people are saying things that are really wrong and, and immoral, you should criticize them. You should criticize them openly and with more confidence uh, and and not necessarily even assume that you're going to wind up uh, coming to some middle ground on the issue. You might not come to a middle ground. You might not convince the person that you're talking to, but maybe other people are listening. Maybe, you know, and the very fact that you're willing to stand up and say what you believe can be example for others who I think in many cases, especially in our more elite institutions, ironically, are feeling very cowed to express their views. Well, we are not cowed on this show. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> nor are we sheep <laughs> one reason why it's so much fun to do this podcast with you oh it's a it's a great experience we get to talk to the most interesting people be part of the the great questions that are are vital to our society and i hope for all of our our listeners that you're enjoying going along in this ride we're always uh, interested in hearing your thoughts and and if i can just put a year-end plea in uh, on whatever your on apple podcast or whatever your favorite podcast platform is one of the best things you can do for us is go and if you like the, our podcast go and and rate it and 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 make a supportive co- comment it really means a lot and and of course it it helps push those evil algorithms in a better direction it's How Do We Fix It. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. And thank you, Miranda, for another year of fine work. All of our podcasts are made by Davies Content. We're part of the bridging community, pushing back against narrow perspectives and rigid divides. Find out more about our podcasting at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.